Blog Talk Radio. Well, welcome everybody to a special edition of ACO Watch, a midweek review. Today is April 1st, 2011. Yes, April Fool's Day. Great timing, CMS. We've, exci- uh, we've compiled a, uh, what I'm calling an ACO Health Tweep Roundtable for a preliminary deep dive into the Notice of propo- Proposed Rule that was issued yesterday by the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, and that being March 31st, 2011. I'm your host, Greg Masters, publisher of the blog ACO Watch and also known on Twitter as Two Health Guru. I sometimes regret that moniker, not sometimes, often regret that moniker, but bear with me. And we're broadcasting today from San Diego, California. It's the 18th segment in our weekly series that monitors and informs the emerging accountable care organization industry. So yesterday, the Twittersphere was the Twittersphere, Blogosphere, and even the traditional media outlets, though, may I say, late to the party, were all abuzz about the pre-conference call, conference call, and eventually following of the rule with the Federal Register on ACOs. While only the first round of an albeit broad and complex proposed rule, many of the provisions herein have forged have been forged from accessible, collaborative, and meaningful conversations between uh, between across the spectrum of healthcare stakeholders by a tapestry of federal agencies, including CMS, the Department of Justice, FTC, Treasury, and IRS. The content released yesterday, if you will, is target-rich for consumption, conversation, analysis, and advocacy, whether pro or con. In my view, CMS goes overboard on bringing us into the conversation of developing the rule providing considerable context and background at each step from the statutory guidance in the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act to the rationale informing implementation guidance from broad brush characterizations of the standing and nature of an ACO in the Act. So joining me today on our roundtable are some notable names from the Twitter sphere with considerable credentialed and experiential standing in their respective niches and professional domains including Mark Brown, M.D. of PYA, a.k.a. at Consult Doc, Vince Caritis of Better Health Technologies, LLC, and publisher of the eCare Management blog, a.k.a. Vince Caritis, that's D-I-N-C-E-K-U-R-A-I-T-I-S, and David Harlow of the Harlow Group, LLC, publisher of the popular health blog, uh, healthblog. Let's see. I don't think I have that correct. Anyway, publisher of the health blog, and AKA Health Blog. That's H E A L T H B L A W G on Twitter. So, welcome, gentlemen. Thank you. So glad you're part of this rather impromptu gathering. <laughs> well, it's been a little over 29 hours since the release of the proposed rule, and there is much to consider. Who wants to begin? Great. This is Mark. I guess I can jump right in. Can you all hear me okay? Yes. Great. Um, my eyes are still a little bit blurry from trying to, uh, to plod through. Uh, and and as I admitted to you earlier, I haven't quite made it through the entirety of the rule uh, to get all the detail in. But uh, I, I do share some of your, your thoughts. There was an awful lot of 
background provided. Uh, I'm not sure that it was all unnecessary, though. I, I do think there was a a fair amount of necessary conversation, maybe even preemptive conversation uh, from CMS. And as I sort of read that, I kept wondering to myself, you know, is this to – I don't want to use the word short circuit, but sort of preempt some of the commentary that, that is likely to come uh, around this proposed rule in that a lot of the discussions I think that people are going to be having – CMS, I think, was trying to make a point that they've already had a lot of this discussion. Not that they don't want to hear the commentary, but that some of that decision-making probably is already out of the barn. Um, I, I do think, and I'll just make one brief comment so I don't take up all the time, and then I'll kick it over to David and Vince, but just sort of a high-level response is that looking at this from an operational perspective, and if, if I were the CEO of a hospital right now, uh, the scale and scope of this, although there is a lot of flexibility and they do make some provisions for some smaller players, uh, FQHCs and, and critical access hospitals and the like, um, it is going to take an enormous amount of, of time and resources. And I think everyone has known that on the hospital side. Uh, but it, looking at what it's going to take to accomplish even what I've already gotten through, it's going to take an even greater amount, amount of resources and, and dedication to set these up than I personally Mark, let me back up a middle uh, a minute, and you're breaking up a little bit, not not really a lot, but just a tad. T tell us a little bit about who you're a physician. Mm -hmm. uh, you you work with a firm that that does co consulting. You're a member yeah. of ACPE, very active uh, in leadership roles with the American College of Physician Executives. Tell us a little bit about your angle and how you're coming at this. I'm trying to to come at it from the angle of what's it going to take. To actually make some of this happen. I mean, I, I know that, that David and others are looking at this from a, a legal perspective of, of the, the regulatory piece. I don't want to put words in your mouth, David, so I apologize. But, but I, I'm interested in that piece, but I'm trying to come at it from the angle of not only how would I enact this if I were the CEO of a hospital, but how can we help our clients make a logical decision about how to set this up? Okay, great. So, right, Mark, I, w I would have to agree. There's been a, obviously a lot of discussion about what this rule might look like in the months leading up to its issuance, and there's been a lot of work that a lot of people have done to get ready to be an ACL, and some of that work, I think, will turn out to be uh, time well spent, and some of it, not so much. Uh, there's certainly a lot of stuff to be done in terms of aligning uh, interest, making sure people are all pulling in the same direction across uh, a healthcare provider enterprise, even before getting into the details of what is an ACO and how do I become an ACO. So the folks who have spent time doing that, I think their time has been well spent. People who have been trying to divine what the ACO final rules will look like um, may have been uh, uh, spending some time that, that that may need to require some rework now. And by the way, that was David Harlow who just spoke. Vince, do you want to chime in? Or I was, I was going to respond to David, but I wanted to make sure Vince had a chance to jump in. Yeah, Vince, step up, yeah, tell us who you are. And this is great. So I'll make a couple of prefatory uh, remarks. Uh, I think you know my my overall observation is uh, the bar has been set high, uh, very high, and that tire kickers need not apply is is part of the message here. 
I'll, I'll be talking a little bit later more specifically about uh, how health information technology is interwoven here. And I'll, I'll contrast this rule with what we saw in high-tech legislation where, where the trick on the part of the government was really to set the bar high enough to make a change in the marketplace and low enough to encourage doctors and hospitals to participate. Uh, my read here is the strategy is different and the bar is deliberately set high and uh, with an understanding that that is going to turn away a lot of potential applicants. And uh, they're really trying to transform care uh, to make this apply to the, the whole population that doctors and hospitals serve. And, uh, and it's a big bet, and it's certainly uh, not anything that's guaranteed to be successful, but I would characterize it as uh, very ambitious. So that's a couple of opening thoughts from my end. I like that. I think that brilliantly sets the context because the CMS is is very very uh, is uh, is going to great lengths to achieve that sweet spot, and clearly that is not easy given the nature of this business. Well, Ben, this is Mark. I, I love what you said about tire kickers need not apply. Uh, I think that that is absolutely correct. I think that uh, as David and I were discussing earlier. I think there's been a lot of, at least an attempt by CMS to prevent, deter, I'm not sure the word to use, but gamesmanship, uh, whether it's you know, anything from coding to risk-bearing, the risk-bearing component of this. There's been a lot of thought put into uh, the lessons learned from the PPP demonstration project, uh, and it certainly is going to take a very well-thought-out and complex uh, complex to manage sort of effort to be involved with an ACO even even at the peripheral level. I think that's right. This is David again, and uh, one thing that I note in in looking through this uh, large collection of of regulations and policies and guidelines is that the uh, regulatory agencies have taken Don Berwick's words to heart. He said uh, months ago, we want to open up the landscape to experimentation. And yes, the bar is high, and there will be significant resources needed in order to play on this field. But once you're on the field, there are a whole lot of possible um, variations that can be played here. And there are, yes, there are some limits based on the legislation in the Affordable Care Act and in other legislation that applies here, like uh, Stark and Anti-Kickback. But beyond some very minimal restrictions, there's really, this is really kind of wide open, even to the point of the, uh, the basic notion and the, and the name of this program, Shared Savings. Um, the statute that specifically enables this experiment speaks of shared savings, and right out of the gate, one of the key components here is shared risk, not only shared savings, but they're borrowing some regulatory authority from the CMS Center for Innovation to move into the uh, territory of uh, shared risk, which I think is a good thing. Well, so David, this is Vince. I'm, I'm going to partially disagree with you. 
and I, I see that there is some leeway here, uh, for example, in the types of technologies that uh, you may choose to employ as an ACO. Uh, there's a long laundry list of uh, technologies like remote monitoring, telehealth, etc., and they're not specified, but there are a lot of specifications in here. Uh, on the IT side, for example, 50% of uh, the primary care physicians in the ACO must be meaningful users according to high tech by, by year two. Uh, that's a much higher hurdle than we see in the high tech legislation. Uh, there's requirements for reporting uh, extensively on 65 quality measures. Uh, there are eight patient uh, participation uh, requirements, all of which have to be met. So, yeah, there's some leeway here, but uh, I, I, what I would point to here, and I think it's beneficial, actually, is there's, there's quite a bit of specificity and objectivity in, in this that I see. Yeah, I, I'm, I can't disagree. There's certainly a lot of detail that's uh, spelled out and required here. But I think at the same time, there are the uh, sort of eight, eight or so basic requirements of, you know, what does it mean to be an ACO? And we were looking for a lot of detail, or I was looking for detail, expecting detail in the regulations. How is it that you demonstrate that you've met each of these requirements? And really the only one that has a lot of detail is the patient-centeredness uh, requirement. That's sort of the definitional, definitional level of you know what is an ACL? Well, D David, this is Greg. Why, why don't you start there? Because th there's been a, an attempt to make this known to uh, a full range of people, primarily who are participating in social media via Twitter. So that would include professionals in the industry. That would include patient advocates, e-patients, those who are committed to and very interested in the shared governance and patient-centric structuring of an ACO. Take a few minutes. Start at the basics. What's an ACO, and where are they going in terms of these regs, in terms of organization and, and governance? Okay. Well, an ACO is going to have to be a new legal entity, or possibly in some cases, if you really have an, uh, 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 an integrated health system, you may have an existing parent company that could act as an ACO. But unlike some early discussions uh, under the statute before the rule came out, um, where we thought, well, you could have a series of agreements that bind people together, no. Uh, the government is saying you need to have a new entity that is the ACO. Uh, that is not necessarily an entity that's providing care, though it could be. Uh, but it has to be a, a standalone entity that has uh, agreements in place with the providers that make up the ACO where they agree to collaborate in the way that's set out in the regulation. They agree to share information um, and in fact uh, without these agreements and without some of the exceptions and special waivers that are put in place here today uh, this is information they would not be able to share. Uh, they would not be able to pass information back and forth uh, for HIPAA purposes, they would not be able to pass dollars back and forth because it would look like a kickback or it would look like uh, inurement, et cetera. Um, but there are the waivers in place in order to accommodate these aspects of the relationships. Um, and the expectation is that 
uh, the uh, we get over the antitrust issues if uh, the ACO is not so large that it is dominant in its home market. Um, there are some uh, easier roads to hoe in the antitrust analysis. There's sort of a two or three level analysis set forth in the Federal Trade Commission's rule that came out. There's some uh, tax exemption issues because we have money that's going to be shared back and forth between for-profit and not-for-profit entities. The IRS is getting involved and put out a request for information basically saying, do we need to get involved here? Is there going to be private inurement of, uh, uh, of benefits of uh, non-profit entities flowing into the hands of for-profit entities? Um, what should we do here? So that's one of the many things that we are called upon to comment on in the next couple of months. And that's an important part to bring up is that this is a notice of proposed rulemaking that's now open for public comment. So there, it's been forged with pre-publishing dialogue, private and otherwise, to actually construct it as, as submitted yesterday, and it's open for public comment now. Vince, do you want to sort of maybe walk us through a little bit uh, any particular segment that you uh, uh, spent most of your time in uh, in the last 24 hours? Yeah, I appreciate that. Thanks, Greg. I want to talk about the topic of clinical integration and, and how that is enabled by, uh, by health information technology. And I, I think it's necessary to provide a couple of definitions. Uh, the, the term clinical integration, and, and I want to coin a new term here, uh, and the distinction between what previously has been clinical integration 1.0 and clinical integration 2.0, which I think this document begins to define. Uh, clinical integration, if you Google the term, is actually uh, a term that is a reference back to a 1997 FTC document uh, beginning to give some antitrust guidance for hospitals and doctors. And the term clinical integration 1.0 has been driven largely by uh, lawyers. Uh, it has not received a lot of testing. And the uh, criteria for whether or not a proposed joint venture of doctors and hospitals uh, have been fairly uh, ambiguous and vague and not well-defined. Uh, in contrast, going forward, what, what clinical integration 2.0 will be uh, is something that uh, I, I hope will be embraced by, by clinicians and will, uh, will clinical integration 1.0 in terms of the antitrust issues I want to emphasize does not go away. Uh, the term will still be used, but I hope clinical integration will take on a whole new meaning in the sense of it's really about coordinating and improving patient care. Uh, there are uh, 65 quality measures in here. There are specific information technology uh, requirements uh, that are spelled out in here. And we begin to see uh, a framework offered by the government on how you actually achieve the concept of clinical integration, not just from the standpoint of tripping antitrust wires, but from the standpoint of how do you actually truly improve uh, patient care. And, and I think that's a very uh, positive thing. It's not going to be easy uh, measures. And uh, I think that uh, health information technology is uh, positioned as, a, as an enabler in that, and clearly there has been 
uh, a significant amount of dialogue among the federal agencies in in their interweaving of leading uh, in requirements, for example, that reinforce the adoption of electronic health records, uh, the PQRS quality reporting measures, uh, etc. So I, I think that's a you know brief introduction. I think that we need to think differently about clinical integration, and hopefully it will be a term that we see being used much more frequently by doctors and other clinicians and not only by lawyers. David, let me ask you this. Have they achieved the balance they're looking for where they're not favoring mature integrated delivery systems? Are they really reaching out into mainstream medicine so that uh, solo physicians can actually organize and survive under this program? Well, I think that it is possible, but as we've set up until this point, I think it's going to be difficult because of the infrastructure requirements. But uh, I would like to just sort of highlight for you an example, sort of a precursor that people point to. What's the precursor of an ACO? Well, some people say it's the AQC, the Alternative Quality Contract, that's been offered in Massachusetts by Blue Cross Blue Shield Massachusetts to its provider networks. And so under its HMO product, they have a contract that is uh, like an ACO in terms of the payment structure and in terms of the coordination of care, like an ACO in terms of the fact that an individual member doesn't choose to enroll in an ACO. They're their doc enrolls and they get strung along. So um, um, there's some experience there. And part of the experience is that small and solo practices can be aggregated into an organization that participates in this alternative quality contract. And it is possible for small and solo practices to get aggregated into an ACO as well. I'll comment on that too, Greg. I I may take a little bit stronger view than, than what David has just outlined. I, I do believe that small one and two physician practices uh, could successfully aggregate into an ACO, but I think going back to some of your first comments, David, I think there's going to have to be some more sophisticated alignment strategy independent of the ACO for many one and two physician practices um, and, and or to decide you know, what their practice is going to look like in the future independent of the ACO, but I think this is is driven and, and does lean substantially towards larger integration or larger organizations, excuse me, driving a significant component of this. Yeah, I, I, know, would I would agree with. I would. Go ahead, David. Uh, I'm sorry. I was just going to jump back in and say that I, I would agree with that. And in fact, the rules, as they're laid out today, um, make it clear that. In order to avail oneself of uh, waivers and exemptions under the various laws that make it difficult to actually be an ACO, one needs to act as an ACO with respect to your commercial population as well, not just your Medicare population. We're not just talking about 5,000 covered lives under the Medicare ACO. It doesn't really work unless you're able to contract in a similar way with commercial payers for uh, the rest of your population. So I'll take it even a step further, uh, Vince, here, and say uh, I read the 
infrastructure and reporting requirements as uh, as significant and burdensome, and uh, I don't think we're going to see many or any uh, small uh, ACOs here. Uh, the the time, the the capital requirements, uh, and certainly the the market scale issue. If you're a small ACO, you know there there is sensitivity to market clout here, and you got to look at that at the other end of the of the telescope as well, and say if you're an ACO that controls two percent of the market, how are you going to get anyone to pay attention to you? Why would specialists bother to sign up with you? Uh, and you're going to find it very difficult to develop that that medical neighborhood. So uh, I think this very much favors the the larger organization, and uh, I think we're going to see ACOs much more in the range of hundreds of thousands and and perhaps even millions of patients. Let, let me let me jump into that. Uh, I just want to read from the document uh, section. A up front. It says, uh, and this is a summary, after evaluating the three options for defining the range of potentially eligible providers and suppliers, we have decided to propose the third option. Under this proposal, the four groups specifically identified in Section 1899 of the Act and CAH's critical access hospitals billing under Method 2 would have the opportunity to form ACOs independently. In addition, the four statutorily identified groups, such as the CAH's billing, billing under Method 2, could establish an ACO with broader collaborations by including particular partnerships, other ways in which we could employ the discretion provided to the Secretary to allow the independent participation of providers and suppliers not specifically mentioned in the statute. For example, through an ACO formed by a group of federally qualified health centers and uh, regional health centers. So they're really reaching out to be inclusive here, recognizing that the Secretary has broad discretion to look at innovation. If you simply look at how it's been written thus far, I'd absolutely agree it's going to favor mature uh, integrated delivery systems, Kaiser, Geisinger, you know, uh, the like, uh, Intermountain Group Health, etc. But if this ACO um, uh, objective is going to be realized, it's going to have to reach out into granular mainstream medicine. And if single physicians, solo practices, small groups of disorganized community providers aren't going to find a conduit to come together and fulfill these triple aim obligations, it will fail. You know, Greg, Greg? the the um, individual physicians may be more likely to be able to aggregate into a larger group and get a seat at the table. It's going to take longer for some of these specialty providers like the federally qualified um, health centers and others simply for a couple of technical reasons. The way that they bill today does not allow CMS to parse out the historical experience data that they need in order to have a, um, a baseline to measure against to see if they're saving money. So they're going to change the way in which they bill going forward. So a couple of years from now, the door will be open to more of these different kinds of provider types. Right, and it's the secretarial discretion to expand the definition of eligible providers as suppliers. That's going to be the, the the prism to run run some of these alternative options through. 
So, I so Greg, I would agree that I think that there's been great attempts to try and incorporate uh, smaller groups. Uh, the AMA has been very much lobbying for uh, smaller physician groups. Uh, my read, however, is uh, that ain't happening and that uh, the barriers in here are going to keep uh, smaller groups that are uh, not organized, sophisticated, uh, with extensive IT and capital uh, to be able to participate. Um, I, I'd like to interject another comment. You read from the regs, and I think that uh, just to, to offer a perspective, if you want to begin to understand what's going on here, uh, don't, don't actually start reading with the, with the rule itself. Uh, there's a lot of thinking aloud that goes on in that document where CMS spends pages saying, you know, here's one way we could have done it and we could have done it another way, and then here's what we finally decided to do. And, uh, and so if you're looking to get a PhD in, in ACOs, uh, you, you probably would want to read that document and read it thoroughly. But for the, for the average reader, I would suggest starting with the Medicare fact sheets, which are, are much more condensation of here it is as opposed to here's the 13 ways we thought about doing it. So who, who wants to tick off of that? Well, let me jump in. Just uh, one other thought on size and scale. I know we've kind of beat this one up, but there is a bit of an economic equation here as well. I mean, yes, there's a 5,000 life minimum that we've all talked about. It's, it's obviously going to take something greater than that. I don't know that it's going to take millions, although there may be some ACOs that have millions of lives. I agree with Vince. Uh, but just the economic equation of how much infrastructure am I going to have to invest and what is my return on that investment going to be, similar to some of the, the recent article in New England Journal of Medicine that went off the PGP uh, demonstration project saying that you would have to have a 17 to 20% return you know, and, and I'm not sure I agree with all their methodology, but it was an interesting thought process that I think there's going to be a lot of organizations looking at as far as, you know, when you look at Tom Strauss from SUMA, when they've created this, this infrastructure already anticipating ACO, they're a very advanced organization. They've, they've got a lot of integration pieces going on. You know, in an article I read from him, Becker's, where they hired 180 people just to focus on the creation of a kind of a care organization, and they were just looking at PHF. They, were just looking, they weren't looking at 65 metrics. So just the, the operational scale to do this is going to become cost prohibitive the smaller you are. There's definitely going to be a too small. It's not to say that small individual groups can't participate in some way, shape, or form, or as David says, maybe aggregate into a larger group, but you're going to have to leverage some economies of scale. Okay, well, is this going to get at the need for more coordinated, less disorganized, discontinued, and discontinuous medicine? Let me let me jump in on that one if I can first, guys, because I wanted to bounce off something Vince said to answer your question, Greg, or at least start to partially answer your question. We've alluded to the 65 quality metrics, and you know, quality is where I spend a lot of my time. So I spent a lot of time digging into what those metrics were and what they meant and how they were trying to the structure of what they were trying to drive to. And and no surprise, it's sort of a Captain Obvious moment. There's a lot of drive in the incentive around those metrics to keep people out of the hospital, period. I mean, and, and that's sort of, again, a Captain Obvious moment, but the, the metrics are different than, than we've seen in the past that are a lot of hospital-based metrics. Uh, these are more towards the outpatient side of life, and there is definitely incentive around care coordination, both on the IT side, the use of clinical decision support, the use of patient registries, uh, uh, 
nine measures alone on prevention, immunizations, recommended screenings, patient education, those sort of things. So it's not all outcome metrics. You know, 30-day post-discharge visit, medication reconciliation things. Yes, to your point, Greg, there are a lot of metrics that are driving incentives to to coordinate care. Um, but there were a couple others in there that surprised me a little bit. I'd be curious to see Vincent and David's response to some of this. There, there were two measures in there that were composite metrics, all or none. You have to do it all right or you don't get any points at all. One on diabetes, one on COPD. And, and they're all good metrics and things that we've been tracking, LDL, ability, et cetera. But the, when you read through the value-based purchasing, I read, because they were only 39 pages, but they talked a lot about the creation of composite measures. There's another composite measure in here on hospital-acquired conditions, 17, 18, something like that. Uh, measures rolled up into it. And, and I think we're going to start, as this starts to roll out, there's going to be an expectation of you, you're going to have to start getting some of this right. We're going to roll them up into a single score, and you're not going to get individual credit for little pieces of all your behavior. Uh, so there's definitely a drive towards that care coordination piece, Greg, but I don't know that everybody's going to be able to pull it off. So I'll, I'll ping off of that, uh, Mark. Uh, a couple of caveats, which maybe we should have given, uh, you know, very early on here. Uh, one is this is a 429-page document, and uh, it's it's thick. It's almost impenetrable, and uh, you know we've had it for 29 hours. So uh, I'm not even sure I understand your question, Mark. And uh, you know I think uh, to inject a bit of levity here, what you've got is. Uh, you know, four middle-aged white guys uh, professing uh, on, on a 400-page document that's been out for 24 hours. So, uh, you know, take everything we say here with a grain of salt. Uh, I think your point, though, where I will agree is your point about uh, the outpatient emphasis, and I think that one impression I also had in reading this was who's going to be the most surprised is probably the, the hospitals in that this is uh, truly, uh, there's a lot of teeth here, and uh, that uh, if you were thinking about uh, doing this as uh, sort of a bluff uh, or as hedging your bets, uh, you're going to really rethink it. And, uh, again, I think we're only going to have really serious uh, hospitals that, that truly are trying to migrate towards being integrated delivery systems, even, even become uh, applicants here. So that might have been sort of a uh, a call for a little diversity in the conversation. So if we have any uh, females out there who would like to interject their conversation with four middle-aged white guys, you're by all means invited. You know, and the thing here is we want to have fun. You know, let me pause for a moment and say this is just a an example of the power of social media because all of us here talking in this conversation we've connected through social media primarily twitter uh, i for one started following vince's blog i felt vince on the e-care management blog was writing stuff that you know I, I think i commented one time vince you could just expand it with a little bit of fluff and start selling it for five thousand dollars as a consulting deliverable i mean he was putting incredibly useful information out there for free and for fun for, for people to absorb same thing with david harlow i started following david harlow same thing with mark uh, mark brown at pya at consult doc so we've all kind of begun to bond in this social media space and we're, we and this is a byproduct 
of that conversation. So I just wanted to say that. So let me back up. I don't know if, if this is um, helpful or not, but um, uh, you know, under the this is I'm going to read from one of the the actually eight the tools that CMS put out there to try and digest what's going on here. And, and there are some on the call who'll be listening or after the fact about well, what the hell are these organizations? So. This four, I want to go to the to the five groups that they've got listed here. Uh, under the proposed rule, an ACO refers to a group of providers and suppliers of services, for example, hospitals, physicians, and others involved in patient care, that will work together to coordinate care for the patients they serve with the, with original medical, Medicare, that is, those who are not in a Medicare Advantage private plan. The goal of an ACO is to deliver seamless, high-quality care for Medicare beneficiaries. The ACO would be a patient-centered organization where the patient and providers are true partners in care decisions. These words are chosen very carefully. Many have very specific definitions elsewhere. The Affordable Care Act specifies that an ACO may include the following types of groups and providers of providers and suppliers of Medicare covered services. One, ACO professionals, i.e., physicians and hospitals meeting the statutory definition in group practice arrangements. Two, networks of individual practices of ACO professionals. Three, partnerships or joint venture agreements between hospitals and ACO professionals, or four, hospitals employing ACO professionals, and five, other Medicare providers and suppliers as determined by the Secretary. So with that as broad context, it's pretty clear, and I, and I tweeted earlier today, the days, D-A-Z-E, the days of disconnected medicine over, you know, and that's really, I think, what this whole conversation is about in terms of the the act, the basis for the further definition in the rule, and where we are today. So I, I just throw that out there. I don't know if it does anything for anyone else. Well, so it's four white guys having a group uh, having a, a group hug, uh, Greg. I, <laughs> I, your comments on social media are, are, are very apt and. Uh, I've been following. There's really people with very deep expertise in the blogosphere, and that uh, my impression of the first uh, general media comments on the ACOs was uh, it did, they did little more than just say there's this 429-page document on the web. Hello. Hello, Greg, David. Still there? I'm here. Yes. I'm here. I'm sorry. Okay. Yeah, I got radio silence for a minute too. Sorry, I must have inadvertently muted myself. Did 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 I did you hear the uh the 
the last couple of oh did you hear the conversation about social media that we heard okay good sorry <laughs> i didn't hear you respond to vince though i heard silence and i was waiting to jump in okay well don't 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 just look to me i i, I you know wherever we um whoever has uh, any particular comments on uh, any particular aspect that they they drilled into last night um or some of the guidance documents that have been put out or any of the comments in the twitter stream I'm going to throw a question out for Vince here. Go ahead, Vince. Uh, I think one of my observations, and I'd like to hear others' thoughts on this, is really asking about the question of capital and that, the again, the infrastructure and reporting requirements are going to require significant amounts of capital for these ACOs to get going, and where is that going to come from? And uh, I uh, I think there's some opportunities in here that – that may be interesting, uh, and I'll just toss them out for things to watch for. Uh, one, one is I think uh, that uh, health plans uh, have been uh, missing some of the potential opportunities in ACOs. Initially, they were very cautious, and there certainly is a risk of ACOs going to directly to employers and disintermediating the health plan. But I, I think health plans, uh, particularly in doctor driven ACOs have an opportunity here to bond with the doctors, uh, to, uh, to, to lay the tension out of some of the antitrust issues, and uh, to begin to uh, catalyze uh, the kind of uh, clinical care uh, that truly uh, is, is better and cheaper and uh, you know, that we all have a, a vision of being enabled by health information technology. The other thought on capital that I want to throw out is uh, CMS in the in the rule estimates there will be 75 to 150 uh, ACOs that will apply. And uh, whereas I may have thought that there would be thousands and that I think prior to this document coming out, I think I had thought of an ACO as a mainstream organization that I see this as a much more niche type of an organization where the participants are going to have to be very, very committed to true true transformational change, and that if an ACO is successful, it's going to be hitting a home run because the requirements here are very steep. And in turn, on the capital issue, I wonder if that may attract some private equity or uh, other uh, market capital that... uh, is interested in the next generation of uh, care management organization and that uh, this is not a mainstream and that the folks who come out of here truly are going to be Marines or special forces if they are successful, and I will qualify the if. Uh, So that's a couple of thoughts that I've had, and and perhaps if you guys uh, have any any thoughts, but I think the, the capital issue raises heavily on my mind. So that speaks to the institutional partner role because obviously this is directed, so to speak, towards physicians, but there are going to be capital thresholds here. There's a legal organization that needs to be formed. There's a 5,000-member threshold that's stipulated. There's got to be some accounting going on, some quality management reporting going on. You know, This is going to look and feel like a third-generation independent practice organization or a fully integrated medical group practice, if not an outright integrated delivery system. Yep. <laughs> well, that sort of ended it all. Um, so, so, Vince, 
Talk about maybe the IT angle here, you know, the connecting the dots of the connected community and uh, where is the patient here? Is this a patient-centric, uh, um, is this a patient-centricity opportunity for medicine or is this something to fear? I mean, you made a note earlier on that CMS stipulating the shared governance and the involvement of the, of the community or the Medicare beneficiary is micromanagement and perhaps overreach. What's that about? Well, you asked a number of questions. Let me start with the health IT issue and, and look at it at two levels. One is that there are some specific requirements in here for health IT. Uh, for example, the biggest one that I've mentioned and that I can see in here through the, the first read is the, the idea that 50% of the primary care physicians in the ACO must be meaningful use certified, not just have an EHR, but have to be uh, meaningful use certified and therefore receiving funding through through high tech that's a way high, higher barrier than we've seen before and uh, and then the second observation about health IT is is not that it's mandated but but if you're going to be successful it's going to be really required to run this kind of an organization and to be able to get the kind of data that you need to make good managerial and clinical decisions uh, that if you're truly uh, going to be able to manage patient care uh, at the point of care and have clinical decision support and in turn also uh, develop systems for, for asynchronous care where uh, the clinician and the patient can communicate through email, uh, the patient can be monitored through remote monitoring, uh, that's going to require a lot of uh, IT infrastructure, and again, that's not mandated, but uh, in effect becomes a requirement, even though it's not a legislated requirement. If you're, if you're going to do this, you just need to have that kind of infrastructure to be a successful organization. As to your other comment, uh, and we had a uh, – Greg and I actually largely agree on things, uh, but one – Area there, there's a there's a really burdensome requirements in here from CMS that I would label as micromanagement, and uh, I hope they will back off. Uh, one example is the requirement of having a, a a patient on the governance board, and and I'm totally uh, on board with the idea of the patient centered care, and I think it's in the right direction. But I, I take that to the level of micromanagement, uh, a 25 percent withhold of funds, that's another level of micromanagement. The need to have your marketing uh, materials approved by uh, CMS, that, that really is uh, overboard. So, um, you know, that's maybe a long answer to your question, uh, Greg. So, any, anyone? So some of these, uh, this is David, uh, just some of the requirements that you're ticking off there uh, just make me think of this as sort of the, uh, this is sort of the Frankenstein monster of CMS. Because these requirements, each of them shows up in earlier uh, creations of CMS. There's advanced marketing approval requirements for Medicare HMOs. There's community member uh, Medicare beneficiary uh, board membership required under the uh, gain sharing and other demonstrations that have been run by CMS in the past. So there's sort of bits and pieces of these uh, uh, these sort of vestigial um, elements that CMS is somewhat comfortable with, that they're sort of slapping together and creating this um, this monster of an ACO. 
monster of an ACO. Whoa. <laughs> and just as a practical matter to bounce off of that, you know, in my client experiences, I have had uh, many interactions and seen what comes out of uh, CMS. And uh, it's, uh, it's a black hole. Uh, you know, the people that are in there are generally good people, but it is the worst uh, definition of a bureaucracy that I think you could find anywhere. And uh, the idea of having to get uh, pre-approval of my marketing documents from, from CMS just sends shivers up my spine. So, so here, here's a tweet um, uh, from uh, PJ Machado on Twitter. He uh, said that um, uh, in response to the third, it will look like a, a third-generation fully integrated IDN that will require capital in my uh view VCs and others will invest in fund will this breathe life into uh, a pri- uh, PPMC 2.0 industry PBMC physician what what is PBMC uh, well a physician practice, practice management, management company. company yeah sort of the 2.0 version the resurrection of uh, of the med partners FICORs FPA medical if you will I think that's there, very possible. There's definitely some activity in that area. Uh, I'm sorry, go ahead. Well, so I, I think that the advantage of, so, so maybe to broaden your question, what will this mean for various kinds of uh, vendors and support vendors out there? Uh, I, I think that there are certainly going to be opportunities in the marketplace to develop very specialized uh, capabilities uh, not to support one uh, ACO that the capabilities that an individual ACO might choose to build, but uh, very specialized capabilities that you're going to try to sell to 50, 100, 150 um, ACOs. Uh, in the area of health IT, uh, certainly they're not going to create that. Uh, in the area of practice management, you know, who knows what we'll, what we'll see there. But I, I think... Uh, there will definitely be some interesting uh, vendor opportunities and that the organizations that step up to the plate are going to need a lot of help and they will not have the, should not have the mindset of building all these capabilities. Well, institutional partner, whether it's physician, uh, whether it's hospital, hospital system parent, a venture uh, uh, supplier, vendor, or um, uh, specifically enabled venture capital-backed companies that are going to do a practice management type of roll-up model, if you will, of, of a second-tier and third-tier market ACOs. It seems to me that's that's all out there. And, and docs are not going to be able to do this by themselves. They're going to require skill sets and talent that they generally don't have. So if they don't default to the major market share leader health plan as an institutional partner or their hospital, where else are they going to get this guidance? Well, but Greg, let me let me provide a counter to that. I, I think there are some things in the rule or the proposed rule that outline for me that whether it's a third-party vendor or a hospital, they're not going to be able to do it without physicians and physician leadership. I mean, there's a specific component of the proposed rule about defined board-certified physician leadership that has to be a part of this. The, the you know the attribution of patients is based only on the primary care physician, not nurse practitioners, not extenders, and that's not to say anything. Uh, bad about nurse practitioners or extenders that provide primary care. That's not my intent here at all. But 
there, there's an opportunity for physicians to lead because the quality components of this are very detailed and can't be done. You know, a vendor can't do it, a hospital can't do it without the, a very, very strong contingent of outpatient physician involvement at this point. So I, I agree with you that physicians are going to need some infrastructure support, but those that can provide the infrastructure support are going to need more than just physicians to show up. It's going to take significant physician leadership, and I think it really represents an opportunity for physicians if we choose to take it. Yeah, I, I would agree. <laughs> physician leadership will be an essential ingredient here. Uh, yeah, I would I would uh, agree with that too. I think there's been an assumption that um, this is sort of a hospital-led endeavor, um, but uh, of, of Vince and I, I know have, have agreed on this before that it, it is really a physician-focused opportunity. And uh, physicians that step to the plate, physician organizations that step to the plate, really have an opportunity to succeed. I mean, it's a truism, but we say that the uh, the most expensive uh, piece of medical equipment is the physician's pen, um, or maybe now it's the physician's iPad. But <laughs> but, um, but that but, but will they will they step up or will will they step up and be proactive? <clears throat> will they run from shared governance? Will they avoid, you know, quote, patients on the board, you know, uh, or will they circle the wagons and put their head in the sands? I oh, think Greg, this is I, an I, I, opportunity to uh, to be a little more proactive, take the reins a little bit. There's been a lot of I'm, – I'm on the phone with a bunch of uh, – uh, with, with, with uh, physicians, but I'll, I'll say it anyway. I mean, physicians have been – um, complaining about being beaten down, et cetera, and I think this provides at least one kind of opportunity to uh, take back some control. Oh, I totally and, agree with that. And, and the element of the doctor's pen or the doctor signing the iPad is one element that doesn't change in healthcare reform. That, that the doctor is still the and their hand is the locus of of controlling uh, quality and controlling uh, health care costs. And uh, it is an opportunity for, uh, for physicians. I think it will be necessary to have very deep physician involvement. And uh, another group I'm aware of, it's the American Medical Group Association, AMGA, not to be confused with MG, MGMA, that is uh, sponsoring a collaborative of large physician groups that have gotten together to form ACOs, uh, I, I think those are uh, some of the most uh, interesting possibilities where uh, their uh, physician-led, uh, physician-driven, physician-enabled, and uh, will be interesting to see uh, how those uh, succeed. But I, I think those are ones worth keeping an eye on as well, the, physician, the ones where physicians truly take the lead. Yeah, Vince, I think it's important to note that we're almost at 18% of GDP. Uh, no one's happy right now with the uh, cost-benefit relationship between what's paid and what's received in, in the healthcare system at the moment. It's at some level at the verge of collapse. Many are exiting. Primary care physicians are overworked, underpaid. Many of them are migrating out of the system into direct practice, concierge care, retainer, or membership-based medicine. I mean... Um, is doing nothing even an option at this point? I'll take that one, Greg. That's a big piece of bait. Um, <laughs> there's, 
doing I, I would I, in answer to your question no I don't think doing nothing is an option and, and I think every well, I think I know that every physician group I speak to at the individual grassroots in the weeds level is trying to figure out where they fit in and what is this going to mean I think we've moved beyond is is something going to happen and I, I think there are very few people in the industry at least that I spoke that I speak to who who believe that nothing is going to happen. Everybody believes something is going to happen. Now we have a little better idea of what one piece of that something is going to be. I think it's going to get a lot of buzz. There's going to be a lot of talk and and, and action, hopefully, around it. But it's not still not the only, the only game in town. It's one model that's going to be out there of moving towards a new way of caring for patients. And I think it's going to be a driver and, and may even be a significant driver. I think we'll, we'll see. At this point, you know, if there's 150 ACOs that apply and 100 get in, how many how many of the Medicare population out there are actually going to be in them and successfully managed by them is, is yet to be seen and yet to be seen whether it can truly drive the outcomes that it's trying to drive. But I do think it's at least guaranteed that the conversation is going to continue. Greg, this is Jan Sidorov. How about if I butt in at this point? Oh, welcome, Jan. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, hello, everybody. I'm Jan Sidorov. I'm I'm also a primary care physician, and and my background uh, is with a uh, as a as a former medical director in an integrated delivery system, and I'm also a primary care physician, and I think um, absolutely correct that physicians recognize that uh, there is that there is a time to change, and I think they're uh, very interested in the concepts embedded in an ACO. One of the problems, there are two big problems, however. The first is that when you look at uh, the regulations and, and the clinical indicators, at least, they're very, very complicated, uh, including uh, some metrics that may not be as familiar to them, ambulatory sensitive conditions. And, the, and I think the other thing is that if you, if, if you want to gauge on, on how doctors think, go to the New England Journal website where all the articles are uh, available for free for download on ACOs, do a search on ACOs, and scroll down to the bottom and take a look at some of the comments that are coming from physicians who are just writing uh, in response to uh, what, what could be characterized as highfalutin concepts um, expounded in the perspective section, you know, very, very uh, elite health services researchy kind of points of view. And then you have uh, bread and butter physicians responding, and the comments are not very nice so far. Um, I haven't done a formal count, but um, the majority, maybe 80%, I'd estimate, right off the top of my head, are very, very leery on a, on, on, on this whole ACO business. Um, many doctors, I think, are going to have to have to be convinced that this is not HMO version 2.0, and, and that is going to be a significant issue, I think, going forward. Well said. Perhaps we can develop uh, an index there to, to track sentiment. Uh, you know, if the New England Journal is a is a, and you know, you would think that the readers of the New England Journal, the ones that, that go to that website, are generally positively predisposed. Uh, those comments are 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 if if they're a canary in the in the mine on physician sentiment. Uh, if I were CMS, I'd be worried. So, and those are mostly comments that are leading up to the release of this proposed rule, correct? Uh, uh, concomitant with the release of the rule, Don Berwick uh, wrote an article that appeared online in the New England Journal, and prior to that was the art was that famous article about how 
the rate of return has to be has has to be pretty steep uh, in order for ACOs to make a to, to make a go of it. And that's the article. I think it's titled uh, Three Years to 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 before ACOs make money or lose money or something like that. There are about thirteen, not many. I mean, this is not a statistically valid sample, but the comments are very um, grexy, as we say in central Pennsylvania. They're not; these doctors are not a happy bunch. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, it's that's uh, that's not surprising to me. I think physicians are pretty frustrated with the delivery system. I mean, I don't know too many people who are happy with it, whether you're a payer or a provider at this point. I think we've got a healthcare conundrum, as Atul Gawande pointed out quite some time ago, and uh, if anything, there's been a lot of conversation and I don't know if the alchemy here is about optimism for the future, whether you're a physician, hospital, hospital system, health plan, or just consuming, uh, you know, e-patient or consumer. But uh, let's face it. I mean, we're all in this together. We're and so, um, Jan, you're a, you you have a very um, you've occupied that chair as medical director for a major integrated delivery system. Um, what's your early take besides the aftermarket sentiment on physicians what's your early take with the regs uh my my early take is is that this is almost uh the, the whole ACO movement almost appears to be an exercise in applied health services research and the uh thing that fascinates me the most about this or that's the biggest black box is how the benchmarks are going to, are going to be established um so, so ACLs will need to perform against a projected benchmark. Um, presumably, uh, Medicare will do a good job of, uh, of, of, of determining what that benchmark is, use valid actuary, actuarial principles. But I think everybody listening uh, to, this, to this phone call recognizes that other attempts by, by CMS in the past to, to A, calculate those benchmarks and b communicate them in a timely fashion and c be able to i'm going to add toss in a third thing be able to respond to criticisms on how those benchmarks were uh, were applied especially if you're losing money has left uh some some wreckage on the beach uh in the past of systems trying to you know storm uh, the the triple aim and actually try to tr try to try to get that and when you look at the comment you know the comments um, not the comment but the document on ACO even though it's very conversational uh, and we thought about this and we thought about that also strikes me as being somewhat um, making it up as we go sort of I mean it's it's it, it's what it what it has in terms of flexibility. It lacks in preciseness. As a matter of fact, I could only find two tables in the whole document that that summarize things. The rest of it just goes on for paragraph after paragraph after paragraph, over four hundred over four hundred pages. As a as a as a medical director, it'd be tough, based on that document, to build a coherent business. I think that's very well said. <laughs> Anybody else got some thought? Is there any optimism in the room? <laughs> well, I'm a doctor, so I'm allowed to be. Yeah. <laughs> that, that's, I'll, I don't get I'll an MD degree unless optimism. I'm unhappy. Speak up. I, I think we're not, you know, to build off of what um, Mark and uh, Jan have just referenced, I, I, I think uh, I would share the uh, perception that the mainstream physician is pretty dis. Uh, enfranchised and very skeptical, and in turn that 
physicians that do apply from this are not going to be mainstream. They're going to be very early adopters. And in my consulting work, uh, I run across uh, a fair number of uh, entrepreneurial and insightful physicians uh, that aren't sitting around waiting for uh, the rules to be defined. They understand how to improve uh, patient care and are using technology and forming uh, unique organizational structures to uh, to make it happen. And uh, I know they're out there, so I don't, I don't doubt your sense that the mainstream doctor is uh, you know, very skeptical, but I also know from my personal experience that there are folks who will uh, sink their teeth into this, and uh, I think we're going to have a very interesting time uh, watching uh, you know, whether it's 75, 100, or, or 500, I don't know, but yeah, these are going to be uh, not mainstream experiments. They're going to be very specialized, and uh, uh, you know, we'll take a lot of lot of work to get uh, lift off. Well, okay. Um, on on the blog acowatch.com, Jeff Cohen from Florida put up a piece called IPAs again, and he he made the point that this is going to breathe life into into many of the carcass IPAs that are sort of left over from the risk pushback days of the 90s when they overreached without adequate infrastructure and capabilities to manage risk. All these IPAs imploded, as did the management companies or the PHOs that they were attached to. But it looks like IPAs pretty well penetrated mainstream medicine. Most docs out there have have some relationship to an IPA or some kind of extramural entity to a medical staff organization. So it seems to me, at the very least, IPA 2.0 is on the horizon here with MSO 2 or 3.0 as well. So I'm not willing to write off um, uh, mainstream medicine quite yet. I think the stakes are too high because doing nothing isn't an option. It really isn't. And... um, and the Kaisers, Geisingers, Intermountain, the mature deliveries, integrated delivery systems out there are steaming ahead here. They're well positioned. So unless you're going to leave, you know, fee-for-service uh, billing and collections medicine, which many are doing, and adopt a concierge or retainer-based practice, your options are pretty much limited unless you're going to exit medicine entirely. So... I don't know. There's there's a lot they're throwing on the wall here. I agree with both Vince and Jan that, you know, kind of letting you into their thought process is a little bit cumbersome and not quite efficient. But, you know, it, there's a narrative there. And, and out of that comes context and a staging of, okay, what are the key decision points here? So I maybe I'm the lone, oper- you know, idealist here, but between high-tech and era and then the PPACA and now this rule. I see opportunities to connect. I see money on the sidelines waiting to engage. And it's all a matter of whether this tapestry can be woven in such a way that it adds to as opposed to piles on to the lives of the doc in practice one day at a time. Well said, Greg. Uh, and, you know, the um, the I, I, I don't disagree. Um the downside, I, I guess, to all of this is that if if the ACO, uh, after this grand experiment, and it's agreed by CMS that this needs to be expanded, um, 
if the ACO does not do a good job of penetrating into the mainstream of healthcare, I think what we will see in its wake as the ACOs recede are larger physician groups. Um, and there may be something good to that. You, you know, larger physician groups, even when they're doing, you know, dysfunctional fee-for-service practice, are still, are still. You could still argue, uh, perform better in terms of uh, measures of clinical quality and cost than the onesie twosie clinical practices. So I think, I think one way or another, the doctors need to recognize that um, the, the days of, so, of, you know, solo. Uh, we're going to run it our way kind of practice are, are numbered. Well, to kind of go off what both you and Greg said, Jan, and said another way, you know, Greg, you might be right, and we're starting to see some IPAs and, and MSOs resurrect themselves a bit. We've certainly seen some of that, that activity, and David, I don't know if you've seen it as well, but um, in in the past, an IPA potentially could have been a way for a physician to continue to practice the way they were always practicing and just get some leverage and aggregate power in numbers. I don't think that structure of an IPA is going to work anymore. I mean, there's certainly a volume equation, as we've talked about, but there's going to need to be a willingness, whether it's through an IPA, an employment model, or just an aggregate group of, of physicians to get together and try to figure this out, of how things are going to be done differently, as, as Jan was alluding to. What are we going to do differently in this new world, uh, not just driven by the reimbursement structure, but all the other factors that are driving physicians to practice in new and different ways? You know, in a sense, it's like who wanted to really be lobby on behalf of the the, the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act? You know, it, it really began, it was hard to defend that at some level. And, and it may hard to be defend these this implementation glide path here with ACOs. But there's going to be a rule that is adopted, <laughs> and and either it's 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 morphed here in such a way that it can inspire, if not optimism, at least a little less pessimism. But bottom line is, uh, something's coming out of this, and there's an opportunity to participate. In yeah, and it's gonna. Go ahead, David. I think I think the what's coming out of this is sort of opportunity for more experimentation and sort of in a number of different ways there is there's there's this odd tension in this rule between fee for service and something that's not fee for service so as as much as we may all want to get away from fee for service medicine this is sort of built on fee for service but then there's a um there's a settlement after the fact there's a there's a retrospective settlement uh, we're looking backwards to figure out who was whose doctor and who was whose patient. Well, David, you there? I think Dave, we lost David there momentarily. David, you there? I'm not seeing a voice recording. Yeah, David. So David will join us when he can uh, show back up on Skype. Um, Vince, Jan, I'm still here. Okay, I'm still here. Okay, good, good. So we'll wait for I'm David. Still here. Good, Mark. So I'm not trying to dominate the conversation. I'm, I'm. Uh, I guess I'm just. I guess my reaction is, hmm. Wow, that's pretty negative. Um, 
and I and I and I look at it, uh, trying to look at you know, trying to look at it from the from the opportunity to innovate. And there's sure a lot of innovation energy out there. And when you talk government, it's kind of big bummer because uh, government, you know. But what would a more transparent process look like at this point? Anyone? Transparent relative well, to what, Greg? The care delivery, or what are, you, what are you asking? Transparent in terms of uh, you know the government's role in for, reaching out and, for, and formulating a rule by which this stuff can actually uh, uh, be brought into law or into regulation. I think the process is actually, other than being very late, is is working pretty well. Uh, that uh, there's parts of this uh, ledge, uh, rule that we can quibble with, but. You know, my overall impression is they've asked for quite a bit of input. They've gotten it. Uh, they've obviously listened to a lot of it. Uh, you know, despite my uh, personal lack of, of interest in hearing their thinking out loud, there there is some learning, and they have shared a lot of areas where uh, they would like to get more input. So uh, I think the process is actually working pretty well. Vince, I, I, I would agree this part of the process... I, I agree this part of the process is also uh, is working very well. Uh, what worries me more, though, is in the execution of this when it gets going. There's a history here of CMS not doing a very good job in terms of transparency and working with partners in a, you know, in a, in a, in a wholly transparent, supportive, nimble kind of way. That, I don't want to go reflects, into history, but... That reflects my black hole comment, John, so I... I fully understand, you know, and it is a very large bureaucracy, and uh, coming up with a, a well-tailored initial document is a lot different than executing a, a, a transformational health system. I would agree, here, here. and I think, I think there are some things actually in the document when you start to put them together instead of, you know, we've talked about a lot of individual pieces. There, there are some things that I think are not necessarily contradictory from a, a legal or regulatory perspective, but I would agree that the process has been transparent, but more from an operational perspective to sort of echo what, what Vince, you and Jan were both saying. There, there, are, there are, you know, as a, at a high level, for instance, you know, the, the, the institution that can probably afford to do this the most and maybe the only institutions who can afford to do this are hospitals and health systems. That's yet to be seen or at least have to be involved somewhere to your capital question, are the ones who potentially have the most to lose with their finances being hurt the most. And so it's sort of a, uh, a paradoxical cycle that's been set up by this process. And, and to give a specific example, uh, maybe we can all put in our two cents. What I haven't woven together is it seems to me the, the requirements for uh, patient involvement are extremely contorted. Uh, on the, the one hand, the legislation uh, seemed to require a retrospective uh, attribution, and the thinking behind that was uh, we don't want to take away any of your benefits, and you're free to go anywhere as a member of Medicare. Uh, so uh, on the one hand, people are going to be given, have to be given this, what I, I, I think will be extremely difficult uh, document to craft of, you know, you have an, uh, an ability to, to opt out of this retrospective ACO, and people are going to say, "What's an ACO, and why am I in it, and 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 and, and what?" And uh, on the other hand, there's reporting requirements on the back end that require the ACO to give 
quality information to their beneficiaries. So on, on out of one side of the mouth, CMS is saying, you know, we want this to be uh, invisible to the patient. And on the other hand, they're saying you got to feed all this information to your patients. Uh, very confusing to me. Oh, I agree. I think that's going to be very complicated, unfortunately. Well, so, go ahead, go ahead, Mark. No, no, no I'm just going to just going to go and bounce off of what what Vince was saying around the attribution piece of this and and the patient freedom. I actually spoke on a panel with Liz Richter, who was one of the primary authors of the regs on Monday before they came out, which was sort of interesting because she had to sit there in the room and say they're coming out soon. And <laughs> uh but but she really emphasized from a CMS perspective, you know, that this is going to be all about patient choice and patient freedom, but at the end of the day, you know, whether this is managed care the way we knew it before or HMO 2.0 or whatever it is, this is about managing the care of patients in a different way, whether it's through care coordination or whatever it ends up being. And it's very difficult to manage a, popul- a population of patients that's open-ended. It, it, that, that fact in and of itself from the physician perspective, not just the patient perspective, not, so, not knowing who's going to be in it till after the fact, is going to make that very complex, if, if not impossible, but certainly difficult. I'll impose an, uh, an MBA term and call that squirrely. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> so the attribution thing is obviously key, and for those who may not understand what that means, uh, Mark, do you want to define it? Well, the, the way that, that I understand it as I read through it in the proposed rule is, is it's it's retrospective and not prospective. And, and I, I was, for one, was, was a bit surprised that it ended up being quite that way, although, I mean, there's been debate seeing which way it's going to end up, but at the end of the day, by design, a physician is not going to know the physicians that are, excuse me, the patients that are currently in the ACO in the, in the performance year, so to speak. Those, those patients are going to be assigned through the, what, what they use the word plurality, through where a patient gets the plurality of their primary care uh, from so if if the physicians the primary care physicians are in your ACO so to speak and those patients get their care from those primary care physicians that's the ACO that they will be attributed to so you you will be caring for patients who may or may not be part of the ACO during that during that year and you won't necessarily know until the very end now the there will be a, a piece up front where CMS has said we will take the data from the previous three years in order to establish the benchmark, and we will share with you, and David was alluding to this earlier, we will share with you the demographic data, the names, the uh, uh, information, the claims numbers, et cetera, that, we've, that we got our benchmark data from, so you'll know the patients that we, got, that we set the benchmark on, and you can make an assumption that probably at least 75% of those will be in your ACO next year. But although there's a population management piece of this, if Mrs. Brown has diabetes, I certainly want to manage her care very, very well. But I, I also want to know the the incentives around that particular patient. CMS has, has, has very much said, and Jan, I'd be looking forward to, to your comment on this, CMS has said, for good clinical reasons, we want everybody to be cared for the same way. And as a physician, I agree with that. But at the same time, not knowing those patients who are going to be included in the ACO, I think, is going to put a wrinkle in, in the management piece of this. I, I, this is Jan, and I, I couldn't agree more. Um, plus, you know, there are a host of other th- that 
you know the regulations haven't talked about, but but which obviously will need to keep ACOs ACO leadership awake at night. There's a host of you know care management, population, you know uh, applied health services researchy kinds of things that need to be need to be done here, and and having and and not really knowing who the target population is increases the um, the uncertainty and the confidence intervals in knowing whether or not the data that you're getting back while you're managing your population on a quarter-by-quarter quarter basis. I mean, these these ACOs are going to have to uh, measure uh, periodically, at least on a quarter basis, you know, a lot of these, a lot of these measures that us managed care medical director types take for granted. I mean, bed days per thousand, you know, uh, is a very basic measure that uh, that uh, managed care organizations live or die by. I I would think that that is going to be something that uh, ACOs are going to want to look at very carefully uh, on an ongoing basis. What what their uh, what their what their admission rate is, as well as their readmission rate, um, knowing what that is for for the population that's ultimately going to be driving your gain share or your downside risk uh, is absolutely critical. Absolutely critical. Well, and, and to your point about the care the care management and the care transition pieces, uh, I was fascinated by how they're proposing to measure care transition when you go through. There's a series of measures within those 65 quality metrics that I alluded to earlier, where the there's a what they call a care transition metric, and and the way they propose to measure whether or not the care transition from site of care A to site of care B are are done well are through a patient survey, and which is kind of an interesting model to say to the patient, well, how well did you understand your plan of care? And I suppose that's the ultimate measurement plan. If you really think about it, you know, did you understand your medications, and how well did you understand it? And that's going to drive one of your quality outcomes. You know, that was I, I saw that too, and I found that very interesting. Which that's what prompted my comment that this is an exercise in applied health services research for people who do health services research. Those those surveys are very validated. Uh, there are all there's a lot of uh, there are many publications about them out there. But once you step outside that relatively narrow spectrum. Of the medical community, not a lot of docs or, or administrators necessarily know about that. Another um, metric here is um, has to do with uh, uh, coordination of care, and the, the 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 key lingo term is ambulatory sensitive conditions. Once again, yeah, if you're in health like services, that. yeah, I mean, if you're a health services researcher or a Washington D.C. wonk, you're very familiar with that. I mean, there is. There are practically books written about ambulatory sensitive conditions, but I can tell you, I can tell you that um, a lot of these organizations that are thinking about forming ACOs um, probably never heard heard that term. You know, on top well, of and, your and, point about the surveys. And, and said another way, it's not just about keeping CHF patients out of the hospital. I mean, it, there, there were many many of those conditions as you read through. You know, bacterial pneumonia admissions per. 100,000 lives. Well, I mean, bacterial pneumonia isn't a preventative admission in the same way that maybe diabetic ketoacidosis is or CHF exacerbation is. There's going to be a certain number of people who get bacterial pneumonia, and I kind of read that as, well, it's we're looking towards more outpatient lines of therapy when you think of these ambulatory sensitive conditions, not necessarily avoiding the condition or acquiring the condition, but avoiding the admission of that condition. And, and it's just a different way. I agree with you that, that physicians are going to have to think 
in terms of I'm not just measuring hemoglobin A1Cs anymore. I, I, I'm changing the way and the things I have to do to make these things happen. Right, because every every time you you focus on these uh, measures, this is David again. I got back on. Hey, welcome back. Yeah. Hi, David. Welcome back. <laughs> the um, the like the diabetes measurements. I mean, everybody does that successfully. So there's not much you can do in terms of incentivizing someone with dollars because they're already at the upper end of the spectrum. So part of the drill here is to pick um, additional quality measures, whether they're process or outcome measures, so where there's room at the top, where there's room to actually motivate people to change and continue to grow, because um, otherwise um, there's sort of no point in, in doing that. So even if they are not fully understood and appreciated by everyone in practice today, it becomes uh, something to uh, aspire to. It's an aspirational goal, and there is room for improvement, both in terms of quality and also in terms of uh, payment. And again, going back to the Massachusetts example where this has been happening on the commercial side through the Blue Cross Blue Shield contract, there's anecdotal evidence and response for over the past couple of years where the physicians in particular are satisfied with the way this contract is going relative to the straight commercial contracts. Uh, Vince here, so I, I, I'd like to maybe put a colloquial spin on what I'm interpreting here uh, and going back to uh, some of Mark and, and Jan's comments. Uh, I think CMS is swinging for the fence here. They're trying to hit a home run and uh, and saying, uh, sending a message, and if, if I remember, I've read hundreds of pages, but I can't remember where I read it, but I think it's explicit that, that they don't want uh, you to manage the ACO population differently then you manage uh, the other population that's in your clinical practice. And uh, we want you to transform your entire practice and, uh, in effect, that uh, under those conditions that knowing the specific members becomes uh, you know, less, less important if you're really trying to manage everyone uh, in the same way. Uh, you know, I think you could characterize that as uh, CMS uh, betting that uh, practices will transform, encouraging, uh, hoping, uh, hallucinating. You know, there's probably a wide <laughs> range of terms that you could use there, uh, but that's my read of what they're trying to do. Right, and they've made that they've made that a requirement um, in order to uh, uh, fit into the uh, various waivers and exceptions on the other rules that are out there. You can't treat the Medicare fee-for-service patients differently than you're treating everybody else. So it's sort of, uh, it's it's um, it's the aspirational, it's the swinging for the fences, but it's also with the um, uh, 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 hurting people in that direction with the big stick. Well, let me ask Vince, this is Greg, um, so what would a single look like if they're uh, swinging for the fence? What would a single look like on a more incremental path? Well, my my, that's a great question. I'd like you know a little time to think about it. But I think what what's different for me in reading this document is I had anticipated ACOs would become mainstream. Uh, the picture I get today is we're going to see a hundred uh, ACOs or 150, and uh, the single is probably not a hundred ACOs that are successful, but 25 out of those hundred that are successful. Uh, but they're going to be successful in a big way. 
Okay. So um, I, l- let me come back at it from, from this point of view. I mean, clearly, uh, um, but it, I, I'm pretty sure everyone on this call will remember Medicare Choice. And that was the first version of the Medicare risk HMOs where I think there's some similarity here in terms of the budget approach to bending the cost curve for Medicare, but they were going to pay 95% of what they calculated to be the area-adjusted per capita cost, and but it, was, but it was managed through Medicare risk contractors, and their whole goal was to reduce the budget expense by 5% through these risk contracting uh, organizations, and that drove a lot of interest in... Uh, um, uh, IPAs that did Medicare risk contracting, most of which blew up, some of which survived and are still around today, like in HealthSpring, as an example. Um, if we were not to swing for the home run here, how could you know mainstream medicine docs not necessarily participating in HealthSprings of the world or employed by Kaiser uh, how 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 would them working together in in more of a patient centric, more coordinated care fashion? What would that look like? I spent a long time negotiating those uh, Medicare Choice contracts. <laughs> yeah. Um, so we have some real specific. Uh, descriptions of what it's going to mean to be patient-centered if you want to be an ACO. That's, uh, that, that is one element of, uh, of the definition here. And it really runs the gamut from the um, patient involvement in governance that we talked about earlier to shared decision-making communication of clinical knowledge and evidence-based medicine to beneficiaries in a way that's understandable to them. So it really covers the waterfront um, in terms of the efforts that would have to be made, um, not only to communicate with patients, but also to coordinate care in a way that is going to make sense for beneficiaries. So let me stretch on that a little bit. I mean, What's wrong with that? I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Uh, I think it is uh, maybe a stretch. It's an aspirational kind of thing, although it's not set out as aspirational. It's set out as a a floor. And maybe that's something that will come out in comments to this proposal. So perhaps that's too ambitious. Yeah, some parts of this might be too of The ACO that we haven't touched on that I think is very important that is at least worth mentioning because it's a really significant and unexpected uh, aspect, and that's the, the two-sided risk model. Uh, and in, in a nutshell, uh, you, uh, the ACO has two different choices of how much risk they want to assume. One is where they go at risk or a significant amount of care uh, for all three years, and the other is where it's pure shared savings in year one and two, but yet the, the, the unexpected piece is you are forced to accept downside risk in year three. 
and uh, I think that that reinforces the the picture that I keep painting of they're swinging for the fence. They they really want uh, ACOs that are committed to the process, and uh, tire kickers need not apply. So in all likelihood, those who are going to opt for that three-year risk conversion downside are going to be mature entities that, that have experience managing Medicare risk populations, in all likelihood. On, on the, the the budget side, you know, where there's really no downside, it's just, hey, you know, we're going to track this according to some sophisticated actuarial budgetary basis, and hopefully, you know, this is, this theory is going to pan out in real life. That That's pretty soft, pretty gentle. I don't see where that's necessarily uh, too much to ask. It's it's testing the theory. Is there at least a 5%? I don't know if 5 is the threshold, but is there potential budget savings if there's just more coordinated, more collaborative care going on? Seems reasonable. Well, I think there's a long-term policy question here, and that is uh, as ACOs do what they're designed to do, and, and that is squeeze out excess cost, um, there will certainly be, if everything works out the way people want it, a decrease in, um, in, in costs. But we live or die not by – well, we live, we live or die in addition to cost. We, we also live or die by trend. So the question is whether or not after, after ACOs kick in and they assume risk, whether or not in the long-term health care costs in terms of trend are going to continue to run their rate of, what, 8, 10, 12 percent. So, so there's the short-term savings, but there's the bigger, more fundamental issue for our children and our grandchildren about whether or not this is really the key in, in addressing what the actuaries call trend. Right, and it looks that like is it's potentially under. just sort of a, uh, a short-term fix. We drop the absolute number down a, a bit, but then we continue right. with the trend. Exactly. Well, gentlemen, we're uh, coming up on 94 minutes into the conversation, so um, I've, I've gone ahead and extended it, and I'm completely uh, here if we want to continue. But uh, is, is there anyone else who uh, would like to take the floor and uh, – uh, and make any additional statements or cover some aspects of the rule that we haven't uh, dealt with yet? I'd like to correct a statement I made uh, earlier. This is Vince. Uh, with Jan joining us, it's actually uh, five middle-aged uh, white guys professing <laughs> on ACO. Well, he sounds kind of young to me, you know. I'm old. <laughs> <laughs> well, so I guess... Stay tuned, right? Um, so the, the, there's more uh, more to come. Obviously, there's a 60-day comment period, as I understand. So perhaps uh, we'll have an opportunity to reconvene with some uh, some deeper dive thoughts onto specific parameters because it's a pretty complex uh, rule, actually. But um, maybe maybe there's more to come here in terms of thrashing through some of these. Uh, definitional and provisions in, in the rule. Well, th thanks for organizing this, Greg, and thanks for everyone else. I, I've learned a lot listening to you guys, and, uh, you know, it's been uh, a lot of fun, and uh, look forward to further uh, further learnings. Well, thank you, Vince. Thank you thanks all. For, 
Thank you, David. Thank you, Vince. Thank you, Jan. Thank you, Mark, for your time today. Uh, I hope that uh, we'll get to do this again. We have a little more insight into the de- the devil in the details here, although we did uh, do what we could within the first 29, 30 hours of having the document to review. So thanks for joining us today, and uh, stay in touch. We do this AC Watch a midweek review weekly at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, Uh, and that's uh, 2 p.m. Eastern, and each week uh, we have someone on the show who's uh, active in this uh, market at, at uh, whether physician health plan. I haven't had a health plan on yet, so we're working on that. But uh, at any rate, thanks for uh, being with us today, and uh, stay tuned, and we'll see you on our next broadcast. Bye now. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.